Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I continue a special series on the 90th anniversary of broadcasting in Hong Kong to mark the birthday of RTHK. Later in the programme, I'll be talking to a former RTHK Deputy Director of Broadcasting, Taikin Man, about outdoor community broadcasts. Former senior civil servant Rachel Cartland talks to me about the first woman and first Chinese director of broadcasting, Cheng Man Yi. I hear about how the Tiananmen massacre of June the 4th, 1989 was covered. And Radio 3's Peter King tells me about when he worked for BFBS, the British Forces Broadcasting Service. But first, let's head back to 1979, when Hong Kong Portuguese DJ Jerry Jose is working as an engineer at RTHK and is asked to create a disco programme. music but they needed a specific program for disco music and they say nobody here knows anything about disco music oh Jerry works here as an engineer he knows about disco music he's a disco DJ I think that I was probably the most radical music on air at that time yeah so what was your program called uh, my program was called Boogie Tracks. did things like I would have a whole hour of uh, disco music all mixed one into the other non-stop you know and uh, I just talk over it and uh, so uh, what were the so you're setting out with this in what year uh, this was 79 yeah so it's Saturday night is it Saturday night it was night Saturday night? night yeah Saturday mm-hmm. night boogie tracks yeah it was yeah yeah but is it that is that um, I mean Greece I think is 1979 yeah it? yeah Greece was Greece was big and I, and I played a lot of Greece uh, songs in, in the discos but Greece wasn't really disco music so you know it's more like uh, 50s style rock and roll so um, what would the early tracks on uh, Saturday night boogie tracks have been it'll be Donna Summer the Sylvester Chic, you know, a lot of that sort of music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how, on this Saturday night, how long did you have boogie tracks for? Uh, it was a forty-five minute show. And how long did it go on for? How many years? Uh, not very long at all. Uh, it only went on for, I think, only about a year. And then after that, RTHK started overnight broadcasting, and so I joined them as an overnight DJ. So I would have the graveyard shift. I'd be from two in the morning until six a.m. Oh. Yeah. So I, I'd come in after the disco and go straight on the air. <laughs> and, and then sometimes uh, when it gets to six o'clock in the morning and I have to read the weather, the words would be jumping around on the page, you know. <laughs> and then 
Tony Ochez, uh, who was uh, would come in at six o'clock in the morning, would jump straight in there like he's had six cups of coffee and go blah 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 blah, blah. and I'd be like, uh, <laughs> I'm sliding off. Well, that's demanding, two <laughs> to six. That's really demanding on your body. As oh well. yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, but you know, when you when you're young like that, you're you're invincible and you can do anything. You know, and also you're getting your radio hours up. Yeah, aren't that's you? right. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, I got an evening show. Uh, and I was on before Ray Cordero because Ray always had that slot, that late night slot. And I'd come on before Ray Cordero and then eventually they gave me the drive time show. And I enjoyed that show. I, I did that for about three years, uh, before I left and, uh, I sort of had fun. So that would with be it. what, three till six? Yeah, yeah, three till six. And, and I used to, uh, love interviewing people, had a lot of, a lot of interesting people. Uh, on the show. So these would be musicians? Uh, everything from Billy Joel to Sister Sledge to the King of Tonga to, you know, whoever I could get my hands on the who King was in Tonga. town. Yeah. <laughs> whoever was in town, yeah. Jerry Jose there, who now lives in Amish country in the United States. As a public broadcaster from the end of the 1960s onwards, then Radio Hong Kong would move increasingly into phone-in programmes and public outreach, where the community would have a chance to comment. Here, the former Deputy Director of Broadcasting, Taikin Man, tells me about heading out into the different districts of Hong Kong in the early 1980s. In the 80s, there are lots of advancements in our programming. For example, in the public affairs programmes, uh, we have a morning show, which is called Talk About. It's every morning from 8 to 10. But since the programs mainly rely on the call-in from the audience, yeah, sometimes we think, that, oh, maybe we have uh, some issues uh, that we would like to have more diversified views. So in early 80s, we did launch a weekly or sometimes twice a week outdoor broadcast. That means uh, we send out outdoor broadcasting team. Yeah, uh, at the time actually I was one of the member, going to different areas. For example, we might be in the Statue Square in Central, we might be in the Chim Sa Choi Ferry or in Mong Kok. So uh, most of the area are where we have uh, work, lots of uh, people working because the working people may not have uh, time to phone in. So we launched that sort of outreach to uh, collect uh, more different views from the general public. And uh, feedback is very positive. You know, sometimes, especially during the time, you know, in the early 80s, you know, we have the uh, Sino... British John declarations on the Hong Kong future. You know, uh, it had a lots of uh, public concerns. Some people would know that, oh, you are there, so they just come out and then John John our live outdoor interviews. So that is one area that we we did in the early 80s, and also in the 80s we for the public affairs programs uh, we did have a uh, uh, a lots of uh, new. Uh, programming, such as uh, because of the open up of the political system, district council elections, and also at that time also the urban council elections, and then later on the legislative council elections. At first, we organize a program just, for example, we organize an election forum just for the district council election or just for the uh, urban council election. But Later on, we found that, oh, why not we use the morning phone-in program as a platform for that sort of discussion? So in mid-80s, we did organize outdoor 
uh, election forum during the our morning phone-in hour. So uh, instead of uh, organizing our phone-in program at studio, we go to organize in outdoor stations. The former deputy director of broadcasting, Tai Kin Man there. In 1986, Cheng Man would become the first Chinese and first woman director of broadcasting, so the head of RTHK in the Hong Kong government. She'd worked for 14 years for RTHK and would work hard to protect RTHK's editorial independence. Cheng Man Yi and I have endeavoured to meet up, but circumstances worked against us, so I look forward to chatting with her on Hong Kong Heritage soon. Meanwhile, retired senior civil servant Rachel Cartland has been friends with Cheng Man Yi for more than 20 years, and we sat down together at the Foreign Correspondents Club to talk about her career and legacy. Well, Man Yi has been a, a friend of mine, a personal friend, for more than 20 years, and is still the same today. Um, originally we met as colleagues and of course she had a reputation in those days uh, when we first got to know each other if we went together to have lunch in a restaurant all the waiters would go oh there'd be an intake of breath because she was such a well-known and recognizable personality in Hong Kong in many ways for a long time she had personified RTHK and um, indeed a typical Hong Kong success story uh, she had come from a pretty ordinary sort of background, uh, gone to university and fully adopted the Hong Kong way of doing things and an understanding of what was important at the time, an understanding of what went on in the West, in the UK in particular, for which she had a great sympathy. I mean, she had uh, a, a real implicit understanding of what it meant to be a public service broadcaster, uh, no doubt nurtured by Jimmy Hawthorne, the very charismatic head of RTHK at the time. But it must also have responded to something in the political atmosphere of those days. Like me, she was a child of the 60s, and um, I think that those of us who grew up in that time had a very strong feeling about individual liberty, um, the right to free expression, a belief that people's stories should be told and that social wrongs could be righted with appropriate input from people who cared. So she was very much associated in the Hong Kong mind with Under the Lion Rock, which of course was so seminal in every way and is never forgotten even now, I don't think. It's still seen as so representative of people at that particular time. I knew her best to work with during the 1990s when uh, we were dealing with broadcasting regulation and she was indeed the head of RTHK. And uh, Manny was a, a broadcaster and a journalist to her fingertips. But also with Manny in particular, this real belief in the importance of the independence of RTHK and its significance as a public broadcaster. And she would defend this to the death. By that time, she was at the height of her powers, if you like, and uh, never afraid uh, to speak out in defense of uh, the public service broadcaster, its importance, and the whole range of principles under which it should operate, particularly its freedom to be able to speak about what was going on in news and current affairs and to comment on it without fear or restraint. 
the fact that she was the first woman and the first Chinese director of broadcasting, did that come as any surprise to you? Uh, no, not at all, because she was such a personality. And I think by that time, the Chineseness was certainly not an issue. Localization was fully accepted, and all those olden days things of we really have to have a Westerner do X, Y, Z, that had all dissipated. Uh, to be a woman was still much more unusual, but by that time you were also seeing other women climbing up the ranks in the government, particularly, of course, Anson, who was at the particular time that we were dealing with the most pressing issues in broadcasting, Secretary for Economic Services, a very important role, but she would quite quickly become Chief Secretary. So what do you think were the main challenges facing Ching Yi during her time as Director of Broadcasting? I think simply to keep reasserting the role of RTHK as it reflected her own understanding, which she'd had for a very long time, uh, since her youth, of the role of the public broadcaster and the way that it should reflect these very important principles, particularly, and say these principles of being able to speak freely, to make programs that could be a bit provocative, to be able to break new ground and not be a stuffy government department. I think it was a disappointment for her, as it was for a lot of us, that the efforts to corporatize or privatize, in fact, RTHK never really succeeded and uh, that it has had to re remain as government department. I don't think that is really quite right for an independent broadcaster. And we were very heavily involved in the planning for what was unfortunately uh, ultimately unsuccessful. When you say that uh, she, you know, under her directorship, you know, you had provocative programs, can you think of any examples? I think it was more the whole approach to what went on and her whole willingness, again, when she was younger, perhaps, to think about breaking new ground. Uh, she was always very ready to, to defend what some people rather stuffily thought was not right for Hong Kong to be doing these forays into pop music and so on. That There was an overall role for RTHK in the community, in a sense not just as a broadcaster, but really some sort of cultural igniter. Now she would be director of broadcasting from 1986 to 1999 when she then went to a diplomatic post in Tokyo. What did you feel about that move? Uh, I think it's quite a shock to a lot of us in the government because her career up till then had been so very much in media and in one way and another, which we would always see as her forte. But in fact, I think she made the best of it. I know that she still has very many friends and connections in Japan and will go back and visit very often. So perhaps it turned out to be not the really unfortunate thing that it might have been. Up until Chung Man Yi, you'd had largely British, often directors of broadcasting, who were often brought in from Britain and the BBC in order to take that role here in Hong Kong. With Chiang Man Yi, you had somebody who'd grown up in Hong Kong and been part of the system. She'd already been part of RTHK or, you know, formerly Radio Hong Kong for 14 years before prior to becoming. So she was really very homegrown and experienced. What do you think her legacy is with RTHK? 
Well, I think she's still very much remembered, not just in RTHK, but in the community as a whole, as something that sort of personifies what many people think of as RTHK at its best, with lots of original programming that really made people in the community think again about the place they lived in and what it meant to them and so on. And just to see RTHK going on as it is, is an achievement. I mean, it's, it's rather sad, perhaps, that to say that it's good enough just to be what it always has been. But in the very changed political circumstances of today, it is an achievement and something very important for us that RTHK continues to be willing to have an interplay of different points of view, different opinions and so on, that it does take seriously still this mandate to be a proper public service broadcaster. Rachel Cartland there. Overnight on June 3rd to 4th, 1989, protests by students in Tiananmen Square in Beijing were put down in a bloody crackdown by the People's Liberation Army. It was a seminal moment also in Hong Kong, where there was a huge sympathy for the students and the city was in shock as the news of the shootings began to come out. Here, Hugh Chiverton, head of the English Language Programme Service at RTHK and veteran political reporter Francis Moriarty, Talk about that time. RTHK, the news summary at nine o'clock. Troops have smashed their way into Tiananmen Square, firing indiscriminately on unarmed protesters. It's not immediately clear how many people have been killed, but an American TV network put the death toll at 150. Hospitals were said to be having difficulty coping with the casualties. This report from Simon Long. Tiananmen Square is now home to the Chinese army. They moved in overnight with a devastating and ruthless use of force against the unarmed protesters trying to stop them. At 5.30 in the morning, I watched as a long column of more than 50 armoured personnel carriers, tanks and troop trucks tossed aside the remnants of the barricades and proceeded into the square from the east. For more than three hours before that, troops had entered the square from other directions and gradually sealed it off. At one point, some 10,000 student protesters were believed to be trapped in the square by the encirclement, during which troops had opened fire on those blocking them. Nobody knows the extent of the casualties. The frequent wail of ambulance sirens suggests there are many. It was a very striking time, a very, a very memorable time. When it actually happened, it was a massive shock, enormous shock, psychological shock to people in Hong Kong because people had thought this is it, really. People had thought that China was going to change completely and that these young people were going to be the ones who changed it with, with support from Hong Kong. There's an enormous amount of sympathy in Hong Kong for the students. And of course, it had been going on for a long time. It had been pretty protracted. So when it did happen and when the tanks moved in, uh, as I say, it was a, a real blow. For the English radio, uh, I remember that it was, I think it was Kit Cummings and Nick Bailey, I think, who were presenting it, possibly uh, Nick Beecroft. And basically people were just encouraged to phone in and sort of express themselves, which wasn't normally the format of the programme by any means. And what we need is a few demonstrations, albeit peaceful, outside Government House, saying that we want a proper basic law here, and that three and a half million people want to have the right of abode in Britain if there is a, um, a, 
an emergency. So people just phoned in and it was kind of a running news story, which wasn't so common in those days, I guess, because things came in in dribs and drabs and there were rumours and there was talks of talk of a coup or a revolt by sections of the army and so on. So the news was, as I say, coming in in little bits. Nobody really knew what had happened. We had some pictures and so on, but what they actually meant, you know, took a long time to become clear and for many it's still not clear. So there were individuals that we spoke to who had been there and there were journalists and so on, English-speaking journalists who would give an account. But in general, it was an enormous psychological blow for Hong Kong that I really remember. I think uh, the present leadership will go down in history, uh, in the Hall of Fame, along people like Hitler, Mussolini and the like. I think they are mad. As I was the newbie on the, on the desk in, in Hong Kong, I had to go out and cover the demonstrations in Hong Kong. So I covered two million person marches, uh, everybody marching in silence, uh, people who were elderly in wheelchairs, people who looked like they'd have a hard time getting up and down the stairs, walking from Central all the way down the Eastern uh, Expressway, coming back around to the old NCNA, New China News Agency, Xinhua office in Happy Valley and corner of Queens Road East. And it was very impressive. Marching in silence, all you can hear are feet and occasional crying of a kid. And, and I thought, well, these folks, are, these folks are pretty awesome, right? And then in the midst of this, when martial law was imposed in Beijing, there was a big demonstration outside Xinhua. It was also a real honest-to-goodness Typhoon 8. I mean, it was the real deal with all the rain. And by the time I walked from my house in Happy Valley, I, I wasn't working, but I thought, I have to see this. And by the time I got to the intersection, I think someplace between 40 and 80,000 people were out there for the demonstration. And I'm basically soaked through, and I'm trying to keep my notebook dry. And at one point in the middle of this, I think it was Chung Mung Kong. Subsequently, he would become one of the first group of legislators to be elected. He stood up and said, let's show our solidarity with the people in Beijing. Put down your umbrellas and take the hoods off your head. Everybody takes off the hood. Everybody puts down the umbrellas, and they're standing there in driving rain. And, and I'm trying to take notes under my little worthless mm -hmm. poncho. And I hear <laughs> around me, and people are putting up umbrellas over me. And I said, oh, no, it's okay. I'll stand here with everybody else and whatever. And they said, no, no, no. We want you to tell our story. And I still have the notebook with the water splatters on it. There was a general strike that was called, or a kind of day of mourning. Every car was driving around with a little black flag on the aerial. And then on the day where there was a sort of a general strike, which the government just sort of stepped back basically and said, OK, do what you like, we're not going to punish anyone. It was felt that we should keep going at RTHK because we were kind of an essential service. But what we did, and this was just kind of the employees spontaneously, more or less, we had a little ceremony. So we went out into Broadcast Drive, into the road, and everyone just basically went out there and bowed three times to the north and tribute to them. So it was a very, very moving, it was a very, very moving, psychologically charged time for everybody in Hong Kong. If you head down to Studio C1A at 7pm on a weeknight, you'll find Peter King, who hosts the programme of his name from 7 till 9, and also Pete's private collection. 
He's worked on and off at RTHK since the 1980s, but also did a stint with the British Forces Broadcasting Service. BFBS had moved its Nepali section from Singapore to Hong Kong in 1971, and Nissan Hut in Sekong was adapted to provide offices and a rough-and-ready studio. Nepali was the only language on BFBS until about 1975. But first, Peter King tells me about when he first got into radio. When I was a kid... I used to... You remember the shirts you could buy with the, with the sort of clear plastic front? So when I was about three years old, I used to pretend to read the news behind this little box. Then the next thing was um, using a baby alarm to make my family listen to me broadcasting out of my bedroom. But my first show, believe it or not, was in 1971. I was 15 and a half. And I went to RAF Hereford as, a, as an apprentice, and, and that's where I started my first show. <laughs> I was known as Peter of A-Flight, believe it or not. My theme tune was 633 Squadron by Ron Goodwin. start off in Hong Kong who was that with uh well I first came to Hong Kong with RTHK but I actually came with a company called Julianas to work as the head DJ for a place called Hot Gossip on Canton Road and they said oh you know the the management there was Heinz and Barbara Grube uh they're terrible people you'll probably stay there for a month if you're lucky by which time I'll find you somewhere else to go this is out of Singapore as it turned out I stayed a year with Hot Gossip and then was doing the overnights here when Tony Baines used to be head of Radio 3 back in the day, and Alan Murphy, and people like that. So what year are we talking? Talking 85. What did the Overnights involve? The Overnights was a great training ground for new presenters, I think, and I, I still reckon it is a great idea to put, you know, young people particularly, because you can get away with certain things. I used to do, if I remember correctly, it was two till six. You basically played music the weather came off a teleprinter you made up a few stories and and away you went and so when you say overnight shift you were on for several hours yeah it was uh, it was two till six and then if i'm not mistaken i think weekends were two till seven at seven o'clock the bbc world news came on and then radio three and radio four used to split and back in those days sunday morning on radio four was ken scott who was then head of english radio and we're going back 85 sort of 86 time back in in those days Accents were you know, were fairly neutral, I would say. And, and coming from Derbyshire, Ken Scott called me into his office one day. He said, "You know, my boys, if you want to improve your voice, don't say public, say public around your use." <laughs> and it was all really that, you know. And back in those days, of course, being from Derbyshire, which is where I am originally, um, I was constantly monitoring myself uh, to, to try and improve my accent like <laughs> <laughs> so you did the overnight shifts mm. you would then go on to work for british forces radio bfbs i went to to cyprus and then the falklands and then singapore and then eventually back here in uh, 95 the Falklands. yeah i've done the falklands was down there not during the war of course but uh, again a fascinating experience uh, british forces radio have this system and in fact I, when I came back here in 95 it was to work for BFBS I was doing the breakfast show but it really involved uh, very much a sort of army 
forces family kind of presentation. So you were involved really in, in producing or, or presenting programmes on BFBS right up until the handover in 1997? In fact, that's true because uh, what happened was was that as they were closing things down, they had the main base at, uh, at what was RAF Set Kong. And I did the last uh, live show from there. It was a Sunday morning. I went in and it looked the same as it always did. And it came out. It looked like the movies had come and taken this huge sort of theatrical stage away. And then when 97 came, what happened was we had to record the last uh, show because that was going to be broadcast from London because they were obviously stripping everything down. By this time, we were all at Tamar, uh, and they had w what they used to call a pod. It was basically a big container, and they've got a few of these things. They can stick them on a C-130 Hercules, send it around the world, drop it off somewhere. It contains a studio, record library, uh, a transmitter, and, uh, and a transmitter tower, and a generator. So you've got an entire radio station in a container. <laughs> and, uh, and so consequently, the, the Sunday morning was the last one, uh, the last live show, which I did there. Peter King there, who you can hear on RTHK from 7 till 9 on weekday evenings. Next week, in the final programme of this 10-part series to mark the 90th anniversary of broadcasting in Hong Kong, I hear about Radio 4, which turns 45 next year. And I head off to the newsroom. And I hear what people expect for the future of RTHK. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.